Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Leonard Malton on Starstruck. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or film, TV, and performing arts category for both of my conversations with Oliver Stone on Chasing the Light. Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Leonard Maltin is one of the world's most respected film critics and historians. He's responsible for the most renowned reference books on films. He covered movies for 30 years on Entertainment Tonight and served two terms as president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and was even on an episode of South Park. And he's just added to more than a dozen published books with his newest title called Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. Leonard, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Great. So what was your goal with Starstruck? Well, in part, if I'm being absolutely honest, it gave me something to do during the pandemic. <laughs> That's fair. And uh, I had one, assi- one writing assignment that uh, took up a little time uh, starting in uh, March. We all had to hunker down last year. And, and then I said, well, I've been toying with the idea of doing a a recollection. I don't call it an autobiography. Uh, and I started writing it and I found I enjoyed doing that. You've loved movies for your entire life. And I think that's reflective in just the incredible knowledge base that you possess when talking about movies, both young and old and performances and what's going on behind the scenes as well. What was going to movies like for you as a kid, Leonard? Oh, it was a treat. It was a treat. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember one day my mother saying, it's such a nice day. How can you go inside to the movie theater? Uh, I ignored her and uh, <laughs> was not sorry that I ignored her. <laughs> and besides, I had, I had no outdoor pursuits. I was terrible at sports and I had no interest in athletics or uh, any kind of physical activity. Uh, if I was not home, uh, chances are I was at the local library. What was the first movie that made you fall in love with film? Well, it's a, it's a very specific experience. There was a movie that came out in 1958 called The Golden Age of Comedy, a compilation of great scenes with uh, the likes of Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy uh, and a lot of lesser known comedians of that silent movie era. And and I, I'd already seen some silent comedies on TV. They used some of that stuff as kitty show fodder uh, at that time. I'm a, I'm a child of the first TV generation, an authentic baby boomer. <laughs> and um, but seeing this on a big screen uh, just captivated me, and it led to my going to the public library in my town, which was walking distance of my house and taking out my first movie-related book, uh, the autobiography of the great movie, the pioneering movie producer, Max Sennett, uh, whose name became synonymous with comedy, slapstick comedy, and the man who first signed Charlie Chaplin to appear in movies. Uh, 
anyway, I, I, I inhaled that book, <laughs> you might say. I, I just, I loved it. And when in many years later, when I found out that a lot of the stories were, shall we say, fanciful <laughs> or, or exaggerated, uh, or in some cases, maybe made up of whole cloth, but what they captured was the era and the, the, the idea of this sort of uh, loose, crazy uh, spontaneity that drove those early comedy films. They really were dreamt up on the spot or on the spur of the moment. You were in eighth grade when JFK was assassinated. What do you recall from that moment and its aftermath over the next few weeks? Uh, I remember first announcement being made by our school principal over the public address system. And there being kind of a wave of disbelief you know, uh, no, can't be. What is that about? Uh, it was unthinkable. We've we've lived through so many unthinkable things since then. Uh, I, I don't know if you can compare, you know, one with another. But uh, when we we were dismissed early and went home, and uh, I was something of a TV junkie in my teens, my adolescence and teens. And so uh, I stayed, I think, pretty much glued to the television set, even though they were not showing anything. There was nothing to show. They, they thought that running programming would be disrespectful, uh, which it would. And um, so they had, they were playing somber classical music and uh, with a kind of a slide saying, you know, in memoriam or something. And then when there was news, they would break in with the news report. And what I remember vividly is being in front of my television, my parents' television set that Sunday morning when uh, Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald. I saw it happen live. Again, just startling, stunning. And, and the, the other thing about the, that, that uh, bespeaks that period was that they didn't have instant replay. And they didn't have satellites to convey, uh, you know, the, the material they were gathering. Uh, it was either live or on film. So you had to go to a laboratory and develop the 16 millimeter film before you could put it on the air. It, it was still a fairly primitive period for television. That footage must still be burned in your brain all these years later. It's just such a, a shocking event that really was the cherry on top, one of the most catastrophic events in U.S. history. Yeah, as I say, unthinkable. How did you start expressing your passion for TV and film through media, Leonard? Well, I, I used a, um, a formula that, I, that I'm, I still draw on. I published myself. <laughs> a friend and I started uh, a little... We called it a magazine that came out every other week. And we used uh, early forms of duplication, like a mimeograph machine. Some people may remember those. And ditto machines to make enough that we could pass out copies to our classmates and friends. And uh, it gave me a, a kind of a rush 
that I still feel uh, that anybody feels now who writes a blog, you know, or, uh, or, or is a habitué of uh, social media, but to do it in print was a, um, it's a very heady feeling. And there was no, no boss, there was no editor standing over me or my, my friend uh, who joined me in this uh, saying, no, you don't want to write about that or that's too dull, try something else. We, we just did what we felt like. I have to admit, part of my reason for wanting to speak with you is because I love the art of the interview, and you're somebody who has proven himself to be very adept at that over the years. And this really started with this fanzine that you started at the age of 13. You were reviewing and you were also conducting interviews at this time and really being savvy at going out and getting those interviews as well. Were there any early lessons that you learned as an interviewer that really helped you going forward as somebody who was responsible for asking people questions about their art form? I learned from every experience. Uh, the, the first real interview that I conducted was with uh, uh, the actor, the comedic actor, Eddie Bracken who people may remember from um, Hail the Conquering Hero and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, two great Preston Sturgis comedies. He did a lot of other stuff, too. Uh, oh, he's in uh, uh, Home Alone 2. Hmm. He's the kindly uh, toy store owner. <laughs> and people, some people may, may recognize him from that. Sure. Anyway, he was on Broadway, uh, having replaced, I think, Art Carney in The Odd Couple. And I went to a matinee. Of, of that production. And I, in the playbill, they had bios of all the actors. And it said that he had been in the silent film version of Our Gang. And that piqued my interest because I didn't think he was in those films. But it, it got me to thinking, well, maybe I should try to interview him. So I went to the stage door and stood there. <laughs> And, and there's a stage door man who actually opens and closes the door for the uh, uh, people coming and going. Uh, and at one point he said, uh, what do you want? And I said, I'd like to talk to Mr. Bracken, make an appointment to come and see him. He says, all right, wait a minute. And in due course, he came back and said, Mr. Bracken says, come back uh, right after the Saturday matinee and he'll see you. That's how I got my first assignment. Uh, and the only problem was, and I, and I went to see him and he, he couldn't have been nicer, could not have been nicer to a kid, to what is obviously a kid. Uh, and I had seen those two Sturgis films, but very little else. And in those days, this is going to sound like Neanderthal uh, reminiscing, but, you know, there was no Internet. You couldn't just click a button and look up somebody's credits or go to Wikipedia uh, and, you know, get a, a, a concise biography of the person you wanted to talk about. I poked around, did what little I could and uh, showed up on Saturday with tape recorder in hand. And I, I hadn't done my homework. I, I hadn't done enough preparation to make it a really good interview. I, I published it in my own magazine, Film Fan Monthly. And uh, he said a few interesting things. And he said some spurious things that I didn't want to call him out on. I didn't think that was my place <laughs> to do. So I, what I learned from that mainly is do your homework. 
And then around the same time, I, uh, my, my pal and I, who were putting out our magazine profile, got to spend a day at our favorite radio station in New York City and interview all the different uh, on-air personalities. And one of them, uh, named Bob Landers, was on in the afternoon, and his handout bio from the station said that he collected 16 millimeter films. So when we turned on the tape recorder, I said, so I understand you collect 16 millimeter films. And he said, yeah. I said, well, I collect eight millimeter films and I hope someday to move up to 16 millimeter. I can't quite afford them now, but it sounds like a wonderful. And he interrupted me and said, is this interview about me or about you? <laughs> and he stopped me dead in my tracks, cold. And at the moment I was wounded. You know, I felt like, you know, I, you know, somebody had knifed me. But I, I've been thanking him, so to speak, ever since, because he taught me an invaluable lesson about interviewing. It's not about you. It's about the person you're talking to. You're right, but at the same time, I feel like unknowingly you were tapping into your abilities as a podcaster many years later, where even though you are asking questions of guests, it is done in more conversational form. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and again, it's not an absolute. When, you're, when you're, you're lucky enough to do an interview that actually becomes a conversation, then you can inject some of yourself and, and, and uh, properly so. But, uh, but I have been at far too many programs here in Los Angeles where the interviewer thinks that uh, they are just as interesting <laughs> as the subject. Well, on that note, I guess I should let you know that I, as a child of the 80s, know you from your time on Entertainment Tonight, first and foremost. How did you initially land a TV gig with E.T. back in the early 1980s? Well, it came from having another opportunity on television. At the time, uh, as, a, as an author, like every author, uh, I was trying to promote my book. And my publisher uh, got me on the Today Show, which now, as it was then, a great gig, a great showcase. It's a national morning show. And uh, at that time, Gene Shalit was there a film critic and entertainment commentator. And he was a very bright guy, very eccentric and bright guy. And they had pre-interviewed me as they, those shows often do uh, to, you know, sort of pick out the best questions to ask. And he held this piece of paper up and said, do I have to stick to this? I said, no, you can ask me anything you like. Because I had done enough of these author interviews by that time to, to feel comfortable. And I knew my subject. So he and I had a really fun, you know, lively uh, uh, back and forth. Hmm. And, and they let it run a little longer than, than they anticipated. And unbeknownst to me, this was in New York City where I lived, 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, a man who worked for Paramount Television saw that interview and called the guy who had just been hired to rescue uh, a show that was still in its infancy called Entertainment Tonight. And a few days later, the phone rang in, in my apartment in New York, where I had moved with my bride, 
was still my bride, Alice. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a guy from this TV show asking if I'd be willing to audition. Came out of the blue. I, I never dreamt of a career in television, let alone on an established show that was already on its way toward becoming a hit. And that's how that happened. Your interview skills as entertainment tonight opened up a lot of other opportunities for you as well. As a matter of fact, you interviewed Burt Reynolds at a Golden Boot Award show, I think in the 1980s. First off, what were the Golden Boot Awards? And secondly, how did that interaction go? Well, you know full well the answer. <laughs> uh, the Golden Boot Awards was a, a, a fundraiser for the motion picture and television fund, which operates uh, a, a famous hospital and a retirement home here in Southern California, founded by Mary Pickford, the great star of the silent era, and still going strong. In fact, it's its 100th anniversary. And um, so everybody supported it. You know, so if you, if you had an event and you said, you know, this is the recipient of the monies that'll be raised. There's no one going to turn you down. And a man named Pat Buttram, some people may remember, he was a sort of a cornpone comedian. He, he was a regular on Green Acres, Mr. Haney on Green Acres, for those who remember 60s television. Mm -hmm. And he was Gene Autry's sidekick. So he said, you know, nobody honors the, the Western. Let's do, uh, let's have a dinner and celebration of people who worked in Westerns, both uh, movie Westerns and TV Westerns. And everybody came, by which I mean Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, Gene Autry, and right on through the television years, James Arness, Gunsmoke, all those folks. And it became an annual event. And I eventually got on the board uh, of advisors. Well, that night, Burt Reynolds was there and uh, with his wife, Lonnie Anderson. And I was not only attending, but I was covering it for Entertainment Tonight. So I said to Burt Reynolds, uh, can we get you on camera for a minute, just talking about tonight? He said, sure. And as my cameraman was hoisting his, his clumsy camera onto his shoulder, Burt said to me, you know, I'd slug you, but there's ladies present. <laughs> And I knew that he had uh, some sort of an itch he needed to scratch about me. And I looked him in, and I, I'm terrible at confrontation. Terrible. But I looked him straight in the eye and I said, I have never said an unkind word about you. Maybe about some of your movies, but never about you. And he said, oh, so it's not personal then. No. <laughs> and as soon as the camera was on, he gave me a wonderful ready-to-go TV soundbite or two about why he loves Westerns. So I got what I, you know, what I needed at that moment and then sort of didn't linger. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just but, goes to show you just how fragile the ego is. If somebody who mm -hmm. was that big at that time is still 
so offended by some negative reviews that you gave to films from a couple years prior. We are all just these fragile creatures when it comes down to it, not immune to criticism. I'm not immune to criticism. I get criticized for things. Uh, my books have been reviewed over the years and I've, you know, resented some of those write-ups and carried grudges for a little while, you know, so I'm no different than anyone else. Is there a review that hurts more than the others? Well, uh, my first hardcover book was called The Great Movie Shorts. And it was all about short subjects, the golden age of short subjects in the 30s and 40s. And almost all of the information in that book was fresh, freshly minted. I went to primary sources, as they say. And, uh, and, and the, the photos, same. Uh, I found incredibly rare, never before published pictures. I was really proud of this book and it was a labor of love. And it was reviewed in Variety, the uh, trade paper. And the man who reviewed it, who I had met, said, well, seems like anybody with the money to go to a memorabilia store and buy a bunch of movie stills can write a book nowadays. And I thought, that's really unfair. But, you know, there's no point in, in, there's nothing to be gained, I think, by complaining or issuing a, uh, a statement or anything like that. It just has to gnaw at you for a little while until you can get rid of it. And you also have to accept that 100% of people aren't going to like what they do and if they do, there probably is something really wrong with whatever it is that you put out there as well, mm-hmm. or uh, something very vanilla or very bland. Now, you've taught a film class at USC for 22-plus years now. What is it, and why do you love this class so much, Leonard? It's a class I inherited that was uh, launched in the early 60s by uh, a man named Arthur Knight, who was a very prominent film critic at that time. And he went to USC and said, look, you're in the backyard of Hollywood. Uh, You should be taking advantage of that. I want to start inviting filmmakers here with their newest films and have a Q&A session after the screening. And they agreed. It's become much more commonplace now, but it was a real, really unusual idea at that time. And he got Alfred Hitchcock to come down. With his latest film. Wow. He also had John Cassavetes, an up-and-comer, uh, and everyone in between. George Lucas took this class. Ron Howard took this class. So it has a long and storied history. And uh, and now it's been mine for 22 years. And uh, and you know, I just I just love the experience of doing it. And it puts me in close contact to 300 some students, mostly 20 somethings. And though I don't like to admit or overemphasize the fact that there is an age gulf between us, <laughs> uh, it uh, you know keeps me on my toes because you can't snow, can't pull a snow job on, uh, on young people. If they spot baloney, you know, they, they see it coming a mile away. 
And you've had an impressive list of guest lecturers come in over the years as well. The Judd Aptow story that you tell in this book is pretty incredible. Why was Marion Cotillard's appearance in class so memorable for you? Well, first that I that I got her. This was the year that she had just made uh, uh, La Vie en Rose, the great French film about tragic singer Edith Piaf. This is the film that introduced us the most part to Marion Cotillard. And um, she attended the LA Film Critics Awards dinner and I was able to approach her and her publicist was standing right next to her, which was key. Because <laughs> <laughs> the publicist usually controls the their schedule, their agenda. And I knew she had been out and about, you know, making appearances uh, for, for different groups that might vote for awards. And I said, how would you like to meet some students? She said, oh, I'd love it. I said, well, I teach a class, you know, and I think they would really like to see your film and, and see you. And so the deal was set. And a week later, I knew my students, by and large, didn't go to see foreign films. Foreign language films was not what, you know, your average late teenager, early 20-something is going to see subtitles are, you know, are, are, are an anathema to them. So we showed the film, which is a really impressive movie. And her performance in it is stunning. Not the least because she plays Edith Piaf at many stages of her life. And when the film was over, the whole class, I mean, spontaneously rose to its feet and gave her a standing ovation not what I call a perfunctory standing ovation because, all right, they've been around a long time. Let's give them a round of applause. They were, they were just so knocked out. And then she was a wonderful guest, very candid, very interesting. Talked about her, the process of making this movie, a very demanding process. And it, it, was, it was just a great night. I don't get starstruck all that often. I've had the pleasure of speaking with enough uh, people who have made big names for themselves over the years, including folks that I have a lot of admiration for, that it just doesn't affect me like that. I feel like Mel Brooks may be an exception, though, and you did a good job of humanizing him in a completely respectful way based on your interactions with him. What's Mel Brooks like to be around, Leonard? Well, in my experience, fun. You know, he, he doesn't need a script. He's naturally funny. He's very earthy, but he's also... Uh, uh, very intelligent and uh, uh, even introspective at times, a thoughtful man uh, who, whose humor embraces some degree of intellectualism and a lot of silliness. And even he comments on the fact that it's not typical to have both of those qualities. Leonard Maltin is one of the world's most respected film critics and historians. He's responsible for the most renowned reference books on films, covered movies for 30-plus years on E.T., served two terms as president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and was even on an episode of South Park. And he's just added one more to more than a dozen books that he has published. That new title is called Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Leonard, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you uh, on both counts. Thank you for saying that. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. 
Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.